0: This sermon, Let the Will of the Lord Be Done, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, November 13th, 2022, at Sovereign Grace Church. Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Acts? We are preaching to the book of Acts, and this morning we are in Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses, I think, 1 through 16, yeah, 1 through 16, Unlike last week, I do have my notes here. Uh, I heard it was an unbelievable sermon, especially without notes. Uh, You should be grateful to the Lord that I am not without notes this morning. It probably would not go off as well as it did with such a seasoned pastor that Lynn Baird is. Amen? Um, But stand with me and let's read Acts 21. Luke continues the story of the early church. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, he went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo." And they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And When he heard this, we... And the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Would you be seated? Please pray with me. Lord, this is your word. And we ask now that we look, as we look into your word, that you would convict us, encourage us, stir us up in our faith, strengthen our faith, bear fruit in and through us for our good and your glory alone, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you are probably familiar with this story. On April 14th, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way to the Diet of Worms, and the emperor had forbidden the sale of all the reformers' books and ordered them to be seized. Luther's life was in great danger. Luther's devoted friend and confidant had sent word that through a special manager, or through a special messenger, not to come to Worms, lest he suffer the same fate as John Huss. Luther comforted his fearful friend, saying, though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still saves, <laughs> amen. And then he sent his friend uh, the now famous message, I shall go to Worms though there were as many devils as tiles on the roofs. On April 16, Luther entered Worms in a Saxon two-wheeled cart preceded by an imperial herald. And then although it was the dinner hour, 2,000 people were present to observe his entrance. On the following day at 4 o'clock, Luther stood before Charles, heir of the long line of Catholic sovereigns, of Maximilian the Romantic, of Ferdinand the Catholic, of Isabella the Orthodox, Sion of the House of Habsburg, Lord of Austria, Burgundy, the Low Countries, Spain, and Naples, holy Roman Emperor ruling over a vaster domain than any save Charlemagne, symbol of the medieval unities, incarnation of a glorious if vanishing heritage, most men of God would have been intimidated. And after an exchange between the Archbishop of Trier, Johann Eck and Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk, overwhelmed by the the immensity of what he was doing, requested and received the night for prayer and consideration. The next day on April 18, a larger hall was chosen because so crowded that scarcely any save the emperor could sit down, finally came this famous dialogue. Johann Eck, Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy Orthodox faith instituted by Christ the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death and gave to us as an inheritance, and which now we are forbidden by the pope and emperor to discuss lest there be no end of debate. I ask you, Martin... Answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther. Since then your majesty and your lordship desires a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God, help me. Amen. I'm confident that none of us will ever be called to stand before the Catholic sovereigns. But God does call us to stand, doesn't he? He calls us to stand up to our culture. He calls us to push through the pain of evangelism, the pain line of evangelism. He calls us to be bright lights in deep darkness, yes, even when the devils are as many as the tiles on the roof. And that's why today's passage is such a gift from God. Whether you are faced with sharing Christ with your transgender neighbor, publicly resisting unrighteousness in a society that calls good bad and bad good, or you are standing or you, or you are faced with standing on truth in the face of hostility, to have Paul's faith, to have his courage, to say, to quote a Puritan, Lord, what thou wilt, when thou wilt, where thou wilt. That is my prayer for us, for me, for you today. Now, in Paul's case, God's will was for him to go to Jerusalem you probably noticed that in our passage, uh, but notice this has been God's will for Paul all along. Flip over quickly to verse nineteen, or I'm sorry, to chapter nineteen, and you'll notice in verse twenty one, when Paul was yet still in Ephesus, Luke says, "Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying." After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul's sights were set on Jerusalem, even back in Ephesus. And then flip over to chapter 20, verse 22. We see this again as he speaks with the elders in Ephesus. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. That is, compelled by the Spirit, bound by the Spirit. The Spirit is leading me to go to Jerusalem. He says not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions, afflictions await me. And so Paul, we see here in chapter 21, as he ends his third and final church planting journey, he knows two things. He knows two things. He knows going to Jerusalem was God's will for him, And he knows that imprisonment and and afflictions await him in Jerusalem. So, hey, I think we could agree on this. Conventional wisdom would say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You're too valuable to the mission. You know exactly what lies ahead for you. Suffering. Persecution. But as we will see in our text this morning, Paul was was guided not by his self-interests, and the words of man. He was guided by the interest of Christ and the words of God. We're going to walk through this text this morning and land on one big point of this entire narrative. But to our text, Paul has just spent precious time with the elders in Ephesus. In, in chapter 20, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we watched on as, as Paul encouraged the pastors in Ephesus. He charged them. He prayed for them. Paul pastored the pastors in Ephesus, but at the same time, Paul knew he must press on to Jerusalem, for that was the Lord's will. And so after making the five-day trip by sea, according to the first couple of verses in, in our chapter today, according to verses one through three, Paul and his team reach a port city called Tyre, where they would stay for a week. And notice what he says in verse four. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to, To go to Jerusalem. Um, One can only imagine this scene. One can only imagine these seven days. I I love the fact that Paul says, that Luke says, when they got to Tyre, Paul sought out fellow disciples. He wanted the fellowship of the saints, he wanted to to feel the love and, and be part and share with them what God was doing. And one can only imagine the late nights and the fellowship that they had together because we know Paul loved to talk about the church. He loved to share the grace that he was seeing and experiencing as he was out and about doing ministry. He loved to tell others about the power of the Spirit and the triumphs of the gospel that were occurring everywhere. And just a a moment not to miss here. This is really true hospitality, isn't it, for Christians? To to, to be with one another and encourage one another and to share the the grace of God that we see in one another. Paul loved doing this. We see that in his letters. And I'm so grateful that as a church, you excel at this kind of hospitality. Listen, if you're visiting, whether you go out to lunch with somebody after church or you get invited to some, what you're gonna find very quickly is that this church is great at socializing. We like to have fun. But you know what? At some point in time, somebody's gonna turn the conversation, so what is the Lord doing? Somebody's gonna turn the conversation to the grace of God at work. Somebody's gonna turn the conversation to celebrating the gospel. And I love that about this church. Paul would have loved that about this church. But, But you'll notice... And in our text, at some point, at some point, the Spirit seems to have prophetically revealed the dangers that awaited Paul in Jerusalem. The text doesn't explicitly say that. This is what it says. Notice again, verse 4, 4b, and and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Doesn't say that they were telling Paul affliction awaits him. It says that they were telling Paul not to go, not to go to Jerusalem. Now some conclude here that that because of that phrase through the Spirit that Paul was by going to Jerusalem was actually in disobedience to the Spirit. Uh, but but we know that can't be true because because we've already seen we've already laid the groundwork that clearly the Spirit was calling Paul to go to Jerusalem. Luke's already established that. And so, what is going on here? Well, the word through there could be translated as because of. So, you could translate this section of verse 4 as because of what the Spirit said. And perhaps that very well was trouble awaits Paul in Jerusalem. Because of what the Spirit said, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So many, many commentators agree that the Spirit prophetically revealed to someone the dangers that awaited Paul. Maybe they shared those, maybe they didn't. What they did share was their personal conclusion, was their personal conclusion based on what they knew about the Spirit, or about Jerusalem, what the Spirit had revealed to them. And that conclusion was, don't go, <laughs> don't do it, it's too dangerous. You're too important to the mission. So this is not the Spirit telling Paul not to go. Paul is not in disobedience. His friends are uh, doing what they're doing. They're doing what we tend to do far too often. I think they're thinking horizontally instead of vertically. They're thinking horizontally instead of vertically. They're thinking preservation versus the kingdom. Regardless... Regardless of what's happening here, Paul knows what lies ahead in Jerusalem, and yet, notice, he, he has tearful, got, he, he, he still goes to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, you'll notice what it says in verse 5 it says, When our days there were ended, we departed went on our journey, and then they went with all the wives and children. What a party here. What a goodbye. They're kneeling down on the beach. They're praying together. They said their farewell, and off Paul went. And he ends up at his next stop in verse 8 in Caesarea, where it says that he entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. So Paul is now at Philip's home. If you're wondering, yes, Luke tells us he was one of the seven. He served as what we know to be deacons now in Acts 6. This is the same Philip who evangelized Samaria in Acts 8. Yes, this is the same Philip who led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord using the very passage we heard this morning in communion, Isaiah 53. And while Paul is in, while Paul and his team are staying with Philip and Apparently, he has some godly daughters uh, with the gift of prophecy. There was a prophet who came to them. His name is Agabus, Luke says. Notice verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Yes, this is the same Agabus who, who prophesied the great famine in Acts 11 which was actually part of why life was so difficult for those that the book of James was written to. And so this is the same Agabus. Notice what he says. Verse 11, and coming to us, that is Agabus, he took Paul's belt, probably a cloth sash, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, We're talking about crashing a party, right? (laughs) This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, as we watch, we're going to watch this prophecy unfold at the end of the chapter. And one of the things we'll learn is that Agabus had the substance correct But he had some of the details wrong. And it's a reminder that all prophecy, any gift of prophecy is in part, it is not authoritative, and it must be tested, measured, and weighed to the word of God. That's what we believe as continuationists regarding the gift of prophecy. But but what a dramatic moment here. What a dramatic moment. This is, this is not your, I hate the game gestures, by the way. My family always wants to play gestures. I, I can't stand that game. This is not your father's game of gestures. This is a dramatic moment. Agabus comes in. He removes, he removes Paul's belt. Now, now, if Tim or Tom came into my house and tried to remove my belt, I'd be like, but he removed, that would be weird. He removes his belt. He binds his own hands and legs. I have no idea how he did that. He binds his hands and legs, and he says, the one who owns this belt, this is what they will do to you in Jerusalem. Now, I have no doubt you could hear a pin drop in that room. I'm sure people were fixed on Agabus. I also have no doubt that the room, at some point in time, erupted, including the good doctor, Luke, because notice verse 12. Note the wheeze in verse 12. You've got this picture. Agabus is acting out this vision And Luke writes, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what this scene was like, but but it wouldn't surprise me if it was like a chaotic press conference. When what the people were seeing finally set in, that suddenly people were firing thoughts back to Paul. Paul, you can't go. Paul, this is too dangerous. Paul, what about the church? Paul, listen, you'll die in Jerusalem. Paul, this is crazy. They're trying to convince him. Don't go to Jerusalem. Nothing but trouble awaits. And Paul... A disciple determined to do the will of God silences everyone with his response. Notice verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am not ready. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I I don't think Paul is rebuking his friends here. I don't think that's the point. I think he's saying, guys, (laughs) oh man, your love for me, your concern for me, that breaks my heart. It means so much to me. It makes leaving you so much harder. must live according to the word of God, not the word of man. I get it. Danger lies ahead for me in Jerusalem. Trust me, the Spirit has made that clear. He made it clear way back in Ephesus, (laughs) and he's made it clear since then. i'm ready for it with joy even if it costs me my life paul was ready to suffer whatever that suffering looked like for the name of jesus he was ready to preach the gospel anywhere he was ready to suffer anything anytime even death itself, so long as Christ was made known. Did you notice his motivation in verse 13? He says, listen, I'm ready. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember, flip back in 2024, remember he said something very similar to the uh, elders in Ephesus he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's not naive. Paul's not a thrill seeker. He's not monastic. He has one goal, the name of Jesus Christ to be known. And he just, that great mission is more precious to him than his very own life. For the sake of the gospel and the praise of God's glory through the salvation of sinners and the building of the church until the return of Christ. Paul's attitude is, Lord, what thou wilt, when thou wilt, where thou wilt, lead me on. No conventional wisdom. No pleas from from dear, beloved friends. Or partner in the mission like Luke could move him from going to Jerusalem. And I love their response. Look at verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, (laughs) I just laugh at that, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days we got ready And we went to Jerusalem. So, with that, Paul is off to Jerusalem, fully aware that affliction and imprisonment await him in the city. No doubt the vivid image of Agabus and the heart wrenching appeals of his dear friends ringing in his mind. Yet he was resolved to follow the will of the Lord for the sake of the glory of Christ. No one would keep Paul out of Jerusalem. Lord, what thou wilt, when thou wilt, where thou wilt. As as I looked at this this week, I, I couldn't help but think of another man who was on his way to Jerusalem. Where? Just a few decades earlier there were some who told him don't go to Jerusalem because of what awaited him there plotting Jews notice how familiar Paul's road is to this man's road plotting Jews who would bind him Turn him over to the Gentiles to be beat and whipped and nailed to a cross where he would hang suspended between heaven and earth, engulfed in darkness as the sole target of his father's divine wrath on sin. It was just an, it was just. Hours earlier, where in the garden, Jesus, with the weight of what awaited him on the cross, began to come down on him. And in crushing agony, he cried out, Lord, is there any other way, paraphrasing, but the road to Jerusalem? Silence that spoke volume. And Jesus saying, yet not my will, your will be done. Listen, the words in verse, verse 15, let the will of the Lord be done, scream and take us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've already heard in communion where the Lord was pleased To crush his son. Let Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Lift your eyes up to the one. Whom he is going to Jerusalem for. For the sake of the one. Who gave up his life for him. Paul knows this. Oh Paul knows this. He remembers going to Damascus. Ready to to annihilate the church. And on that road, this one who had his own road to Jerusalem met him in an instant of a moment and redeemed him from his sins and set him apart. And if you remember, as he goes to the prophet's home who would not meet with him because he knew who Saul was, he said, listen, I have chosen him. I have plans for him. He must suffer for me. (laughs) Here we go. So this road to Jerusalem, this let the will of the Lord be done, oh, doesn't it take us back to the one who took the road to Jerusalem, who submitted himself to the will of his Father for our sake. Here's the point this morning. Following Jesus at any cost, is the cost of following Jesus. Paul was willing to follow Jesus at any cost. The very one who gave his life up for Paul at the greatest cost. And you and me, we have that in common With the Apostle Paul. To be a Christian is to live by the grace of God, for the will of God, to the praise of God, at any cost. At any cost. The same Paul who courageously goes to Jerusalem wrote in chapter two, verse 16, here's the irony. <laughs> this same Paul who says, I must go to Jerusalem. I'm ready to die for Jesus. He wrote to the Corinthian church, who is sufficient for these things? <laughs> and by the way, that's not a question. That's a statement. I'm not you're not. I I'm said, just, I'm just trying to muster up enough courage to get rid of that bridge course invitation that's been in my bag for a week now. That, that's my world. At any cost, I'm just trying to muster enough faith, enough courage to, to invite somebody to come learn about Jesus on a Monday or Wednesday night. I was talking to somebody this week about my text and my sermon, and, and I, when I shared the prop statement, which is, following Jesus at any cost is the cost of following Jesus. That's the big idea. Their response was, well, sounds like that's gonna be a hard sermon to hear. <laughs> Yes and no. Yes, if we approach Paul's example in our own strength. Yes, if we rely on our own discipline and self will as we approach Paul's example. But no if we see it through the lens of the cost that Christ paid for us to be his ambassadors. No, if we see that he's already walked this road to Jerusalem for us. And when he ascended, he gave his spirit to all those that he saves for such a time as this, empowering us, strengthening us, giving us a holy courage to speak into the world around us. And when we approach this text, not in our own identity and in our own strength and our own abilities, but we approach it in Christ, we approach it with the Spirit, then suddenly what seems so hard to hear becomes eager worship. <laughs> Lord, who will you bring me across this week to give that bridge course invitation to? When we see it in his strength, then we, we, we find this calling that is grand and glorious because in this calling to step out at any cost is to become more like Jesus it is to walk in his shoes. It is to suffer as he suffered. It is to, to reflect him and to become like him, the one who humbled himself at any cost to the point of death. Philippians 2A. The one who endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy set before him. Oh, church, part of that joy is seeing you at his father's right-hand side with him one day. The one who was despised and rejected and bore our griefs and sorrows, even though he was wholly righteous. Isaiah 53. Jesus followed the will of his Father at any cost. So we follow Jesus at any cost. And listen, listen. As we do by faith in grace and through the strength of the Spirit, you know what I love? is that we never know who God has waiting for us in Jerusalem. (laughs) We don't know who's there. I don't know who's on the receiving end of that bridge course invitation. But somebody's there. Paul's own road to Jerusalem, guess where it leads? It leads to Rome, where Paul will stand before kings and emperors and proclaim the name of Jesus. And who will we see in heaven who was there? Who thought that the emperor was actually God. But Paul, standing in his own, uh, in his own verms bowed their knee to the gospel message and was saved. And perhaps told someone man I'm glad Paul came to Jerusalem man I'm glad Paul came to Rome following Jesus at all costs is the cost of following Jesus and we can do that in the strength of the spirit and with joy and with awe and with fruitfulness. Listen, don't believe, here's something that will get in the way. Don't believe the lie that says this, God's highest aim is my happiness in this life. Because that is kryptonite to following Jesus at any cost. Listen, you guys know this, I don't have to tell you this, Soci- our society is awash in self interest, right? And that has crept into the church in many places. God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be carefree. So any suffering and any affliction or any path that might lead me to that must not be God's will for me. Listen, lie. The Bible never says that. It says the opposite, Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. In other words, faith is a gift. Now, get ready for one more gift, but also suffer for his sake. The word privilege, or has been, the phrase has been granted to you, is connected to suffering for his sake. <laughs> suffering for Christ is a Christian privilege. Because as I said, it makes us like Christ in every way. It advances the kingdom of God. It takes the gospel to sinners in need of a Savior. Now listen, that that, that does not mean we go out looking for problems. It doesn't mean we go out looking for pain. That's not godliness. That's stupidity, right? Right? But if following the will of God for my life, if following the will of God for your life means suffering, then embracing it with sobriety and joy to the praise of God, knowing that you are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory in the future. Now that's godliness. I love what Oswald Chambers says. He says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. Yes, it does. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. The question isn't, do I want to suffer? The question is, will I follow Jesus? I think it's natural for us to ask this question. How how do I know what God's will is for me in this text? And good question, and my quick answer to that is pray, weigh, counsel, and faith. (laughs) But that's a totally different sermon. The question today is, for the sake of Christ, are you willing to go to Jerusalem? Are you willing to go to Jerusalem no matter what awaits you? It's a haunting question. I get it. (laughs) It's haunted me all week long. But it's an increasingly relevant question that every Christian in the church must consider carefully and prayerfully. In his brief but outstanding article uh, called, Is God a Therapist?, Carl Truman writes this. I would anticipate that within... This was written in May of this year. I would anticipate that within five years, we will witness a significant disruption across all major representatives of the Christian faith. The fault lines will run between those who find a way to accommodate to the world's terms of good citizenship and those whose fidelity to Christ will lead to varying degrees of internal exile within this earthly city. The former will ultimately accept the collapse of biblical anthropology, repudiating its implications for sexual morality, for human identity, and for addressing the various socially constructed problems we now face, such as those as race and gender. The latter, this is where I hope we land, the latter will maintain Christian teaching and be decried as being at best naive, at worst bigoted. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when you will be be faced with the decision to accommodate this world or follow Christ at great cost. I've even told the guys before, I've even had a prophetic sense this week that there are some in this room who are at that crossroads right now that you, 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 you're considering capitulating. You're considering self-preservation over truth, over standing up and proclaiming the name of Christ, standing up for righteousness and condemning unrighteousness. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, come pray with a pastor or find a friend before you leave here today. Don't, don't let Satan silence you. You are the mouthpiece of God in the dark world according to 2 Corinthians five twenty. Now as we close, I want you to, to see something here. Do you remember what Paul did after exhorting the elders to protect the flock? In chapter 20, he commended them to God. Notice, look back there real quickly. Uh, uh, Chapter 20, verse 32. After charging them and admonishing them to protect the flock, (coughs) Paul, verse 32 says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, Paul knew their hope for what They were called to do was set not in their ability to shepherd, but in the power and the plan of God. I commend you to God in His grace now. Go do that which you're called to do. He commended them to God. Paul's confidence was not in the Ephesians pastors, it was in God. And we see the same source of confidence. In our text, as Paul shoves off from Caesarea to Jerusalem, look again at verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Not the will of the Jews. Not the will of Paul. Not the will of the Roman sovereigns. Let the will of the Lord be done. In other words, let's go to Jerusalem. We know the Lord's will will be done. God is in control. God is with us. God is at work. God has it planned out. Whatever happens, it's God's doing. It's his will that we go in. It's just a different way of saying, I commend you to the the purposes and power of God. And off they went to Jerusalem at any cost. I didn't read this part of Luther's story But I want to end with it. On the eve before Luther stood before the Roman sovereigns, he prayed. What a smart man. They say this is what he prayed How frail and sensitive is the flesh of men, and the devil so powerful and active through his apostle and the wise of the world. Oh, thou my God. My God, help me against the reason and wisdom of all the world. Do this. Thou must do it. Thou alone. For this cause is not mine, but thine. For myself, I have no business here with these great lords of the world Indeed, I too desire to enjoy days of peace and quiet and to be undisturbed, but thine, O Lord, is this cause, and it is righteous and of eternal importance. So stand by me, thou faithful, eternal God. I rely on no man. O God, stand by me in the name of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ." who shall be my protector and defender, yea, my mighty fortress. There's a hymn connected to that. <laughs> Through the might and strengthening of thy Holy Spirit. What freedom to follow the Lord Even when the devils are as many as the tiles on the roof. When we learn by the grace of God to live by faith instead of sight and the strength of the Lord instead of our own. So we can say...